Hi, I'm Rosie Acosta. I'm a meditation teacher, speaker, and author of You Are Radically Loved, a healing journey to self-love. Look, I grew up in East Los Angeles during the 92 LA riots, and it set me on a troubled path. I didn't grow up with mentors in my life, so I turned to reading as many books as I possibly could to learn about the purpose of life. In my journey, I found that having these conversations gave me life, and I decided I wanted to create a place where I could share these conversations with my community. So come have a sit with me as we learn about, well, everything. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Radically Loved podcast. We have two very special guests on the show today. So honored and I feel so privileged to have both Wade Lightheart and Matt Gallant on the show today. The co-creators of Bioptimizers, I'll just tell you a little bit about both of their backgrounds and then I'll let them add on to it. So Matt Gallant is a kinesiologist with a degree in the science of physical activity and the CEO co-founder of Bioptimizers. He's been a strength and conditioning coach for multiple pro athletes, a self-defense instructor, and has over 18 years experience formulating supplements. And Wade Lightheart is a certified sports nutritionist, advisor, and president director of education and co-founder of Bioptimizers. As a plant-based and drug-free athlete for more than two decades, Wade is a three-time national natural bodybuilding champion who competed in both the IFBB, Mr. Universe, and the INBA, Natural Olympia, by the age of 31. So lots of accolades to go uh, behind these two gents. Um, the latest out is the Ultimate Nutrition Bible, which I am holding up. It is a big book. <laughs> Um, and I have had the pleasure of getting to dive into it and I'm already using it as a resource. I was literally just sitting in my kitchen this afternoon, reading to it, reading to my husband from it. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for being here, Wade and Matt. How are you both doing? Great. Yeah. Feeling awesome and blessed. Yeah. Likewise. So many questions for you, so many different directions I want to go today. Oh, I mean, let's start with the big one. Let's, the million dollar question, okay? Uh, once we reach the ideal weight, how do we maintain it? Is it sustainable? Can we make that sustainable? First of all, there's a key concept, which was a, a missing piece of the puzzle for us for a long time, both Wade and I, which is once you've push your weight down. Typically your metabolism's a lot slower because your, bo your body's adapting as you're cutting calories and increasing exercise. So there's a concept called reverse dieting, which means you're going to slowly introduce calories. Typically you're going to increase calories by about hundred to 150 calories per day each week until your metabolism is essentially rebuilt. And if you do that carefully, you can essentially increase your calories back to normal without regaining a lot or if any body fat. It's the same thing with the exercise. You want to actually, especially if you've been doing a lot of cardio, you want to slowly start reducing that cardio down to about two hours a week of zone two, which is, I think, optimal. But the other key thing is the goals. You know, we talk about that in the book. You know, one of my favorite chapters is the 27 psychological edges and I discovered that as a trainer, you know, one of my secrets to keeping clients was always 
giving them a goal before they reach the goal that they're on. And as human beings, we're dopamine driven. Dopamine is what fuels us. And what drives dopamine is constantly having something that you're, you're moving towards to. So a lot of people, they have this you know, big weight loss goal. They lose 50 pounds, 100 pounds, 20 pounds. They reach it, but they don't have that next goal lined up. And then we default back to our natural human nature, which is to do less and to eat more. So we're constantly in this battle with our biology, which again, just basically wants us to eat whatever's available, being a calorie surplus, and to preserve energy. So we, we need to be constantly creating strategies that counter that. And I think that it is possible, but only 3% of people make it. So that's why you know almost a third of the book is de dedicated and devoted to weight loss because that's always been the objective, the nearest and closest to my heart because I grew up chubby. And I always um, love working with people that had a lot of weight to lose, including my best friend that I helped lose 191 pounds in 18 months. Wade, maybe talk about some of the strategies that you use. Well, I want to speak directly to the audience um, specifically <clears throat> because I think a lot of women in particular are more susceptible to taking poor advice. And the reason they take poor advice is I think that the emotional variability of their attachment to how they look as how they are as a woman makes them more susceptible for radical based dietary strategies that really disrupt their metabolism. Much of the scientific research has been built around men and men's hormone cycles and is not addressing the unique variances within female hormone cycles. And so <clears throat> I'll give you a case in point. The most successful group of people in dealing with dietary strategies are bodybuilders and fitness competitors. But I can't tell you how many times I've seen women who are the cosmopolitan cover girl level of fitness at an early age that end up being the metabolic nightmare of tomorrow where they can't do anything to gain back the weight because the strategy that they took came from a drug-enhanced, successful male who provided them uh, a strategy that would work within that community but didn't address their unique needs as a woman, especially as a younger woman. And it certainly isn't able to calibrate as a woman gets older, moves through middle age, and then to premenopausal and postmenopausal. So to answer your question directly, I would say, first off, understanding the strategy has to be something that's built for the long term, not the short term. That's essentially what Matt's trying to say. And then the second piece of that is the strategy needs to be built on the metabolism, not on the diet. And that seems kind of counterintuitive, but the people who are long-term successful master the metabolism, which allows them to be successful on the diet, not a diet that disrupts their metabolism and makes it almost impossible to sustain on it. And that's what most people's dietary strategies entail. And we're here to identify, it doesn't matter if you're plant-based, it doesn't matter if you're keto, it doesn't matter if you're paleo, 
as soon as someone is inside that guru camp, you're in a already they're exposing their ignorance because they're saying this is the only way. Maybe that's the only way for them. But that doesn't mean that that information is applicable to you. There are universal dietary principles, which we illustrate clearly and concisely in the book. But where people fail is the unique aspects of the individual. We all hear this story. Well, everybody's different. Okay, well, wonderful. How are they different? And how do you deal with those differences? We identify them. And I think this is a reference guide where you turn to specifically the area that you've been struggling with. You go through the chapters. This is the area I don't seem to figure out. And boom, there's the strategies, there's the tactics, there's the tests, there's the expertise that you require to solve that problem forever. And the average person has maybe three to 10 critical factors that can be solved in this book by not reading the whole thing, by just flipping to those points, addressing those, incorporating them strategically, and then you're done for the rest of your life. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Wade. It's been top of mind for me lately. I know Rosie would empathize um, and back me up on this when I say that having both entered our 40s, um, we're feeling the fluctuation in different hormone levels and also being more aware of the fluctuation on a monthly cycle in terms of menstruation, having metabolism rates, I think, I'm not sure if this is the correct way to say it, but rise and fall with the cycle on a monthly basis as well. So, and that's been revolutionary for me to understand that maybe a couple weeks out of the month or a week out of the month, I might be burning more calories just based on where I am in my cycle. I might need to feed myself more. Um, and just what you said, Wade, understanding that a lot of these diet theories, nutrition historically has been based and tested and studied on a male body and a male metabolism. I'm curious what you know about, um, I guess it would be a woman in menstruating age on that rhythmic monthly cycle differing from a man who, as it's my understanding, fluctuates on a daily 24-hour cycle in terms of the rise and fall of their metabolism. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Well, first off, we got to look at, you, you brought up something really critical, and that is age relative and the overarching. So there's a, you know, your 28 to 35 day cycle, depending on where the average woman is, assuming their menstruation is, you know, normal, whatever that means. Um, but that would be relatively normal. And then there's a rise and fall in estrogen, progesterone, in even testosterone. A lot of people don't realize that testosterone is more predominant than estrogen. It's just women produce a lot more estrogen at different rates. It's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Or not to the same amount as men. And what happens is that most women, their perceived value in the world, unfortunately, is associated with their looks and their reproductibility. And unlike men, their reproductibility is a time, it, there's a much narrower window for women to have children than there is for men. And so that puts women at a very unique disadvantage, especially, and I'm just going to mention this, because now there's a wide variety of opportunities that were traditionally only offered to men. So now you have women going longer to university, building up career sets, competing with men in our, and many of these things to get to that level of competency takes eight, 10, 15, 
20 years. And their early years from when they first start menstruating to say the mid 20s is the perfect time for a woman to have children. And the body is designed to have a higher body fat level, to be more developed for reproductivity. However, that having children and trying to achieve all this puts women at a disadvantage for you know competing with a man that might be able to work 100 hours a week without a kid in tow. And so that's a challenge. And then the stress that comes with it can also be disruptive. So we need to address women in the modern world versus the biological tendencies that we've inherited from 10,000 generations in the past. That has nothing to do with the patriarchy or the matriarchy or the hierarchy or anything. That's just biological facts. So we need to separate politics from biology and deal with reality. Then as a woman gets into their middle cycle, so women who are falling susceptible to Instagram, to magazines, to, you know, Hollywood campaigns, especially young, impressionable women are more likely to take radical dietary steps, highly restrictive diets, fitness and competitions or beauty contests, um, or trying to maintain a certain look. And many a times they'll use harmful cosmetics and harm with harmful chemicals or resort to drug usage in order to sustain unsustainable dietary and exercise strategies. Many of these are given to them by men who they look up to because maybe they're fit or they have a bunch of females working for them. This, I would suggest, is probably the thing that's closest to my heart because I've seen so many hardworking, very attractive women who destroyed their metabolisms early in life because of the pressures outside. Matt has a great story around this on, on, uh, on someone as well he could touch on. The second thing is understand what stage am I in? So my early stage, Am I in my mid twenties to mid thirties? Okay. So that that's probably the optimal time for getting your metabolism on track and getting yourself fit before the hormone cycle starts to deplete where you don't have the hormonal resources. Hormonal resources are kind of the body's way to self-regulate over suboptimal situations, right? That's why athletes who will, will use exogenous drugs to stimulate various aspects to increase muscle growth or to lose body fat or to drop satiety or to improve cognitive performance. It's also why anti-aging drugs become so prevalent in the rich and famous when they hit those stages and their careers or their perception of who they are is based on the replicating what someone looks like 20 years younger. Okay. And so if you're not talking about those factors as influential components, in my opinion, you're doing a disservice to the entire industry. And most of the gurus don't want to touch that. They don't want to get into it. They don't want to be condemned. They don't want to expose maybe the things that, that are going on behind the scenes. And so we address those right up front. The final piece is if you have had a suboptimal metabolism, and struggled on this kind of weight loss yo-yo or this fat loss yoga or whatever, and have bought into many of the, like the more cardio is better than zero carb diet or the no fat diet or whatever the fad was, the grapefruit, whatever the fad was that created a disruption. <clears throat> You're probably going to have to get 
some specific expertise for you as a female to really address your hormones where you are right now, because it's not ubiquitous. It's not the same for everybody at any given time. And oftentimes, <clears throat> many of the people who have really optimal hormonal patterns early in life, a lot of women that have that, have developed a whole bunch of bad habits that get exposed when the hormones crash when they hit that level. Conversely, some women who have suboptimal, you know, hormone regulation that get specific scientific or professional advice on their hormones can usually optimize early on and make that transition through the later stages of their hormone cycle when they go premenopausal and menopausal and do really, really well. So the sooner you get that advice, the better off you are. And I would also suggest that they may want to gear towards other women naturopaths who may be more empathetic to the variance within a hormone cycle than say um, the average man might be. And I think it's okay to trust another woman with your advice. I think you can, can get that, but get professional help, you know, uh, mm -hmm. above and beyond. And we advocate for getting professional help. Matt and I both do a wide variety of tests and we have specific experts that give insight into our own hormones as men. That's saying that a woman couldn't do that. Um, in fact, I have a woman who does a lot of the testing for us, but her real, I mean, she's world-class when it comes to the female side of things, because there's a whole bunch of things that I think that they're going to be more in tune with than say uh, a man who's running the same tests. Mm, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so are we doomed at 40 if we're perimenopause and our metabolism's completely dysregulated and has been our entire life? And I know you're saying like, speak to an expert. This is not ubiquitous across the board, but it sounds like it's, it might be a little bit more challenging to get yourself back on track. You know, I'm thinking about this also from the lens of, let's say we've never lifted weights. We've never done any strength training. Um, and our window of similarly, I believe I'm correct in this, but please correct me if I'm wrong. Your ability, your capacity to build muscle mass is so much easier um, when you're younger, let's say your twenties than it is if you wait till your 40s and your 50s and your 60s, it's harder to gain muscle mass. Uh, does that follow? Does that track that metabolism? Is that much harder to get back on track? I mean, I'm sure it's context specific, but <laughs> what would you say? Well, if you haven't done those things, you've got more levers to pull, which is the good news. If you haven't done those things and then you do those things, the results that you've gotten maybe then over and above what you've done in the past are probably going to be superior, even with suboptimal hormones. The other side of it is the imperative for you to take the time, the energy and resources and to address these issues now is absolutely critical. Just like if you want to have children, you want to do it early in life, if possible, the later it gets, the harder it is. That doesn't mean that it's not possible. It just means that you have less variance for air and less time to get it figured out. So whenever you have those constraints, the important message I can communicate to you is, okay, are you going to be a professional athlete or a fitness model? Probably not. Can you, can you build a metabolism that allows you to live strong and to be healthy for the rest of your years? Absolutely. But if you think that you can't put you, 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 that you're going to be able to do this with, excuse my language, 
a half-assed, half-baked approach, then you're doing yourself a disservice and it's delusional. You need to get the experts, you need to get the professionals, and you need to carve out the time for yourself in order to master these. And I think that's the other psychological component that a lot of women deal with is the guilt about taking time for themselves as opposed to taking care of their families or the people around them or their business responsibilities. So you have to honor that component. And that's where uh, I think getting with a group of supportive females or supportive professionals in conjunction with your experts is also very helpful so that you can be build a team of winners. We always have a saying, environment is stronger than will. You wanna surround yourself with people who are celebrating your success who are sharing their successes and that you can learn from so that you can uh, alleviate the negative side and the negative, um, say, suboptimal emotional and psychological things that hold us back. And we, we dedicate a tremendous amount of the book to identifying these suboptimal psychological and emotional things that keep people stuck in these cycles. In fact, Matt and I, both have many of those that we've had to address in our lives. So we're not immune to them either. This is not a unique female thing. There's masculine things that are well. And that, so, uh, sure. but the technologies to overcome them are similar. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I love that in the book too. You have two very specific examples and the back and forth between you two about um, Matt, your experience. Um, and I'm thinking about um, specifically right now, uh, diet theory. Um, coming from like a ketogenic lens and that working really well for you and Wade coming from a plant-based lens and that working really well for you. So I like that there's space um, for every single diet to exist and work for a particular body type. I think my specific question around this is, uh, gosh, it's I'm going to try to make this succinct. So on, from the macronutrient lens, when I think about something like ketogenic, it's like um, more proteins and fats, a lot less carbohydrates, right? And then plant-based is plant-based. <laughs> um, so it might be harder for you to get all of your amino acids weighed and you might need to supplement in some other way there. Um, but so, and I think the nuanced question that I'm trying to ask about this is in terms of macronutrient content and choosing a diet and figuring out what works best for you, I believe that some people metabolize fats and proteins and carbohydrates differently and more, let's say a fat source might be more bioavailable for Matt than it would be for you, Wade. How do you figure that out? <laughs> well, I think there's that, of course, subjective biofeedback, which both Wade and I have been tuned into since we're teenagers, starting in the bodybuilding world and you know, weighed journals for a long time and recorded workouts and how you feel after every meal. And I think the healthier you become, the more tuned in you, you tend to be to your body. And I think that highly correlates, not perfectly, but it does correlate with your genetics, with your nutrigenomics. But I'll give you an example of some, some big discoveries for me personally that I, I, I would say are impossible without nutrigenomics. And that's related to saturated fats. I've always felt better on a higher fat, lower carb diet. It just it just works well for me. However, I've been doing a whole battery of genetic tests related to nutrition. And one of the things that's come up is I should lower my saturated fat intake. 
Now that does correlate with my lipid profile, which hasn't been as good as I want it to be. And I've struggled to improve that. So now I'm switching more to a Mediterranean style diet, a lot more olive oil, eating leaner cuts of, of meat, et cetera, et cetera. So these are some of the nuances you can start to optimize based on your nutrigenomic test. And full disclosure, we're working on one, fingers crossed, it'll be released you know, relatively soon, hopefully in a few months. Because I think that even though you're tuned into your body, very helpful, there's a limit to how much you can you know, really optimize your diet. And you need data like genetics or blood work is helpful as well, especially if you're working with somebody who can really read between the lines and interpret it and then give you the appropriate adjustments. Um, so I think especially with, with fats, again, weight, for example, doesn't tend to metabolize fats as well as I do. And I think no matter what dietary style you're following, there's a couple of universal principles. One is almost everyone could benefit from eating more protein, whether you're plant-based, even on a ketogenic diet. You know, one of the advanced strategies we outline in the chapter is once you're fat adapted, start increasing your percentage of protein and decreasing your percentage of fat because you're fat adapted. And of course, there's that thermic cost of breaking down protein, which will increase the calorie expenditure. And then there's the anabolic impact or effect of eating more protein, especially if you're having, say, three or four feedings a day. And then I'm going to pass it on to Wade, who, in my opinion, is the king of fiber, which is another thing that I think almost every dietary strategy or philosophy could benefit, and that is to increase the fiber intake. Yeah. So on a plant-based diet, which I found more successful for me, was there's a couple of issues. People go, where do you get your protein? First off, I want to blow out a myth. There's nine essential amino acids that your body doesn't manufacture. Virtually all plants have them. So the story that plants are incomplete proteins is not accurate. Where the story hits the road, the rubber hits the road though, is a lot of people on a plant-based diet do not eat sufficient amounts of protein so they can get enough amino acids. So if you're on a plant-based diet, the likelihood, and, and in order to do that, you'll often overeat calories, which is suboptimal. So you've got the skinny fat vegetarian that doesn't eat enough protein and doesn't have any muscle, or you have the high, the, the more muscular training protein uh, athlete who's fat, okay? <laughs> Whatever you want to determine that as fat. And my standards are probably a little you know, a little bit skewed towards the bodybuilding and fitness world, as opposed to what maybe uh, a, a medical institution said. I think the medical institution are too gracious. I think the bodybuilding community are too harsh. So somewhere in the between would probably be the appropriate matter. So what is the big advantage of a high protein diet? Satiety. We're essentially amino acid searching machines with energy sources that can be varied from oxygen to carbohydrates to fats, okay? So there's a lot of different fuels our body can burn for energy, but we have to get amino acids. And so in the pursuit of the amino acid, you know, quest, which our biology is on, 
as a plant-based person, we have to realize that most of the plants today that we're consuming do not have the amino acid or protein content that plants did 100 or 200 years ago. Just like factory beef is not as good as grass-fed organic beef, okay? And that's understood in the serious circles around metabolism, around the meat-eating plant world. The plant-based people have got to get up to par and recognize that we've been under uh, commercialized production of our food, our plant food by a significant margin, probably disrupting it so much, it's almost impossible to get everything you need on a plant-based diet. And that's where some of the gurus are correct. So how do you deal with that? Supplementing your diet with plant-based amino acids and plant-based proteins. I do that daily for success. The second thing is another um, aspect that my genetics revealed, which I knew inherently, but then I saw it and I was like, oh, it's my genetics. And that is I have a suboptimal gene for food satiety. What that means is, is that I tend to overeat. My body doesn't tell me that you've eaten too much. It says, give me more. Give me a bag of chips. It doesn't matter how big it is. I will just destroy it in no time and not even share with my friends. It's, 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 it's a gene. Okay. To, com to combat that, I have found through trial and error and research in my own life is that I need to really focus on getting enough protein in the first two meals of the day, my first meal and my second meal. And then I want to make sure in that second meal, I'm having a massive infusion of fiber. So, you know, we've heard of the liver king. As Matt said, I'm probably the fiber king. I have a ginormous salad. And when you look at the food volume, people are going, how do you eat all that? Well, the caloric content of that is relatively low, but fiber is really great for satiety and it's really great for feeding the microbiome so that I can convert the proteins I'm eating into the amino acids that my body uses. So it's not how much protein you eat, it's how much amino acid you get. And in order to do that, you need enzymes, you need hydrochloric acid, and you need proteolytic probiotics. So I supplement my diet with those things. I ensure I have enough protein and I create a high a fiber content in my diet in virtually all my meals to keep my satiety up so that I can sustain uh, calorie restriction for a long time. And I was able to do that last year. I think I went 18 months on a highly restrictive caloric diet. I didn't feel that I was suffering. I didn't feel that I was starving. I didn't have food cravings. Was able to maintain that for an extended period of time. Where in the past, when I didn't have those strategies, I was in food starving mode, I was craving, I was doing the willpower drill. And anytime that you're stuck in the will drill, eventually that's going to run out. So your diet should be auto magic. It should be so well structured and put together that you just don't have to think about it anymore. And that's the goal that we want for every single person. What is it that's going to allow you to not ever think about this again, to not ever worry about it again? And if anything comes up, you know exactly what you need to do or where to go to, to solve the inevitable challenges that we all have as aging. Thank you. Gosh. Okay. So many, I have so many follow-up questions. There's a lot of terms we're using here that if you're not familiar with the nutrition realm, I think might be new to you. So I wanted to have us define Incomplete protein and complete protein. I wanted to define satiety. Um, I feel like it, for some of you listening, it, it might be like, duh, of course we know what that is, but let's make sure we're clear. 
Um, I also want to define macronutrients and micronutrients and macronutrients in the sense of um, proteins, fats, and carbs. But I believe that in the book, there are a few more macronutrients than those three. Um, and I think that's it for now. So, oh, fiber, fiber. So fiber in terms of insoluble fiber, because that's something that I see on a lot of prepackaged foods. And I don't believe it's bioavailable to us in terms of the way that Wade is describing, but I'm not the expert these guys are. I'll start with the the macro and the micro. So they have macronutrients, carbohydrates, which your body will break down into glucose and your body will either utilize the glucose as energy or if you have too much cal too much food, it will be stored as body fat, okay? Second, we have protein. As Wade mentioned, your body has to break down the protein into amino acids, and these amino acids are the building blocks of muscle tissue, organs, neurotransmitters, and it goes on and on. So our bodies absolutely need amino acids. Then we have fats, which our body will break down into fatty acids, which can also be used for energy. They can also be converted into hormones, skin, hair, other building blocks, or if you have too much of it, too many calories, too many fatty acids, they will be stored as body fat. So again, it's it's really important to realize, you know, body fat, there's nothing magical about gaining body fat. You're essentially eating more calories, whether it's glucose or fats, that you're burning, and your body has to do something with it. And what it does, it stores it as fat. Then we have fiber, which in my opinion is a macronutrient. The cool thing with fiber is you only absorb about 50% of it. So that's the other thing. You know, and, and I can confirm that Wade eats three to four pound salads at Whole Foods. Seen it many, many, many times. And with all that fiber, you're only absorbing about half. So you're getting all the benefits Wade outlined and you're only getting in, again, half of the calories you normally would from these other macronutrients. Then you have ketones, which in my opinion is another type of macronutrient. And now we have ketone supplements you can use, which are useful, especially if you're starting out a ketogenic diet. And then maybe alcohol could be considered a another type of macronutrient. And then micronutrients are all the trace minerals that your body needs. And most people are more familiar with vitamins, but the truth is very few people have vitamin deficiencies but almost everyone has mineral deficiencies, especially magnesium, potassium, and there's a few other ones that are, again, more on the trace mineral side. So I think it's really valuable to try to optimize your mineral intake. And of course, we have our best-selling product called Magnesium Breakthrough, which has seven different forms of magnesium and can really help counter and, and fix your magnesium deficiencies. But you know, when you start optimizing your micronutrients, you feel better, your body works better. And this is just my theory, but I think long-term, you know, what can kill us are micronutrient deficiencies. You know, when your body starts running out of key minerals, things start to break. And I think it creates these chain reactions. Um, and just to use kind of extreme examples, there's been bodybuilders that have died using diuretics not because they ran out of water, it's because they ran out of 
key minerals that stop their heart from functioning properly. So anyways, we have a whole chapter devoted to micronutrients and which ones you're more likely to be deficient in. And there's some differences between men and women. For example, women tend to need more iron and taking vitamin C with the iron can help. So we cover all of those things. And I'm going to pass it back to the fiber king to talk about soluble fiber versus insoluble fiber. Yes. So first off, fiber um, is number one, it feeds our bacteria, our microbiome. And many of the bacteria cultures, which are essential in the nutrient conversion, converting our food into the nutrients that we need, we have a symbiotic relationship with these are probiotics. We'll live on fiber and different probiotics live on different types of fiber. And so all fiber is not the same. And you, you identified it. what's one of the benefits of fiber. It reduces uh, blood sugar, insulin levels. It slows the digestive process because it takes a long time to digest it. And it increases satiety. And you asked what that was. And that is the feeling of fullness because the feeling of fullness is the antithesis to the hungry and craving. Okay. So for me, someone who is easily slips into, I'm too hungry because of that defective gene I have, I've got to have some really astute strategies around how to do that. And on a low protein plant diet, right? I had to optimize my conversion of that protein. I had to supplement with my diet and I had to use fiber as the key element for the feeling of fullness, otherwise illustrated as satiety. Now, you talked about something very important, insoluble, insoluble fiber. Now, many women complain about what is it they complain about after they eat a meal? Feeling bloated. Bingo. <laughs> I had a protein shake. What did I feel? Bloated. I got gas. Okay, why is that? Well, most people just think of fiber as fiber, but the soluble fiber, when you consume it in the body, actually swells up in size and increases in size and gives you that distended or full feeling in your stomach that now that little tiny fat roll feels like a giant jelly roll coming out over your favorite pair of jeans, right? And you go, I didn't go off my diet. Why am I so bloated? Because likely there was a hidden soluble fiber in the food that you ate. And there's a lot of quote unquote diet foods that load things up in here that increase the visit. So protein shakes, for example, will use a lot of soluble fibers inside of it to create a liquid swelling. Or they'll use chemical agents that will do that, that gives you this full seal feeling, but leaves you bloated and feeling blah. Want to avoid that and be very careful. We identify what those things are in the book. We do how to avoid them. Now you're going to go to the second part of the soluble. So a little bit of soluble fiber is good. But if you are struggling, let's say you have a suboptimal digestive system, and we know that most people do. 12% of the emergency hospital visits right now are gastrointestinal related. A third of the population suffers from digestive illness on any day. And about half of those people are on digestive drugs or things to mitigate, you know, suboptimal diets. 
I believe that one of the when, when some of those people switch to a more plant-based diet or a more fibrous diet, they eat too much soluble fiber and not enough insoluble. In other words, so they've got to build up a mucoid or they're suboptimal or they have a dysbiosis in their bacteria. They start eating plants and like, oh my God, I'm bloated. I can't digest. I'm not going to the bathroom. So when we talk about plant-based diets, if they're going to go that way or increase plants, there's a strategic way to do it, especially if you haven't had it before. But on the insoluble side, this is the, this is the magic fiber in my opinion. So something like hemp protein is a great example of insoluble fiber. And one of the things that you get if you see hemp protein is it's very grainy, right? Almost like an exfoliating scrub. Everyone's using exfoliating right? and they have these grains. Well, oftentimes that's an insoluble fiber that you put on your face. And what does that do? It, it sheds away that top layer of undesirable skin. Insoluble fiber works the same way in your digestive tract. It goes in there and scrapes and scrubs all the plaque, all the bad guys that are leading to gas and bloating and digestive stress and cleans that out. So adding, uh, say, a plant-based protein shake that's high in hemp, like Protein Breakthrough that we have, which I literally got ready for a bodybuilding contest, dieted every day. I ate chocolate every morning for breakfast in my chocolate pudding. I made a fibrous chocolate pudding. And I use that to, to, to move everything out. And guess what? I'm also probably the most regular person on the planet. And the reason that is, is I have so much insoluble fiber. It's constantly cleaning my digestive system. So I don't require extended fasts. I don't need to go on a lot of cleanses. I've done all those things in the past, but now I'm literally cleaning out my digestive system every day. What's the benefit of that? The benefit is when you have an optimal digestive system, you're able to convert the food that you're eating into the building blocks and the energy units that you require. So you tend to have sustained levels of energy without the wild fluctuations over time. And like a ketogenic diet, where there are stages, and Matt might want to identify those stages that a person would go through, there are stages in a plant-based diet or increasing the amount of plants that you eat strategically based on where you are. And that's where a professional can help uh, guide you through those change points. And particularly, they're at about 21 days, about 90 days, and then somewhere between a six months to a year is where that final phase of integration happens. Yeah. Thank you. Matt, did you want to add anything? Well, there's the ketogenic phases. Yeah, let's cover those. And then I think it's important to define nutrigenomics because if you're not deep down the rabbit hole like we are, you probably don't know what that is. But yeah, for anyone who's considering starting a ketogenic diet, or maybe you've already started and you're somewhere along the journey, there's four phases of adaptation. And most people have never forced their body to burn fat for fuel. They've been eating carbohydrates since they're a toddler, since they're a baby, and they've never cut carbohydrates to the point where the body had to adapt and build what's called lipolytic pathways, which is fat burning pathways, and develop the ability to create ketones and then burn them for energy. So when you start off the first two weeks, there's something called the keto flu, which is quite common. And what that means is you're, you've cut carbohydrates, you're starting to produce ketones, but you're not very good at burning them and you tend to feel low energy and feel fluish. The cool hack to instantly fix that is to use ketone supplements like a ketone salt or a ketone ester. You can buy those as drinks now. 
It's a good brand called Ketone Aid or HVMN. You can use those and you'll instantly feel more energy because you're supplying your body with ketones. And then after two weeks, your body's starting to get better and better at creating ketones and utilizing them. So the second phase is typically like week three to week 12. And that's when your body's really getting better and better at, again, building those fat burning pathways. After that, I typically recommend, okay, now we can start doing cyclical refeeds, which means maybe one or two days a week, you can eat some carbohydrates and you can use that along with weight training to be more anabolic. And then the final phase tends to be after about a year where you've forced your body and you've spent so much time in ketosis that even when you eat carbohydrates, you're still in ketosis. And a, a few years ago, we were building a product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. So I had to eat carbohydrates. I was eating 250 grams a day for over two weeks, and I was still in ketosis. So I was measuring my blood ketones. I was still at 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, despite eating 250 grams a day for two weeks straight. So that's just how deep I am in ketosis or how fat adapted I am. And I think there's, there's some real benefits to forcing your body to become fat adapted, even though it might not be the best diet for you. Once you've kind of pushed your body to become fat adapted, you never really lose it. So if you go back to a carb-based diet and come back to a ketogenic diet for a short period of time, it'll be infinitely easier the next time. Now back to nutrigenomics, it is the science of genetics and nutrition. So nutrigenomics, nutrition genetics. And the value of that, and it is a relatively new science, but the value is that you can discover things about you, about your body that, again, as I said earlier, are almost impossible to, to discover otherwise. And it's important to realize that everybody has mutations. Now, mutation is certainly a loaded word. You know, we've all watched movies with mutants and mutations, and it's typically not considered a good thing. But mutations can be superpowers, just like in the movies, or they can become thing. They, they can be things that we need to be hyper mindful of, and because you're aware of it, you can start to create the optimal strategy. I, I talked about the saturated fat thing. I've got also genes that I need to consume more selenium, more zinc. We talked about the, the hunger element. So everybody's got these things. And when you're aware of them, you can make these small tweaks in your diet or with your supplements that can make all the difference in the world long-term. So again, I just wanted to make sure we define that because most people have never heard that term. Yeah, it's a, it's a first for me as I was reading through the book. I'm like, hmm, what is this? But thank you. Thank you very much. I want to talk about calories in, calories out. Uh, it's widely debated, I believe, in <laughs> the health and wellness industry. Um, you know, there are those that will argue that it's in terms of a weight loss strategy, it's literally that simple calories in versus how many calories you're burning a day. And from what I've read so far, this is true. And there's some context that needs to be explained behind that in terms of we've talked about it already. What is the sustainability of that particular diet if it's a diet you're going on? Um, and what is, you know, the context around that? So would you help explain in your own words, 
this truth about calories in, calories out. Well, arguing the laws of thermodynamics would be like arguing that gravity is not real. Um, again, if you're a human being, it's real. I think where the, the, the magical believers in something else are accurate, you know, they're on the right track, is that there's things that can increase calorie expenditure. And I'm going to cue Wade up because we talk about the anabolic impact of muscle building and the impact that that has on metabolism. Because again, as a bodybuilder, you know that better than anyone else. Yeah. So first and foremost, we have to tip our hat to bodybuilding and fitness competitors because we're a large, regardless of the genetics, the worst competitor in, in a local contest has, looks great in the gym and great in their clothes. Right? So they have figured out and all of them follow a calories in calories out. In other words, for the period of time preparing for that show based on their body fat levels, they follow that procedure. In other words, they eat less than they burn. But here's the part that I think a lot of these phony diet gurus are not sharing. They're telling these ridiculous stories that I ate all this extra butter and grew abs. It's just That's just marketing BS, okay? It's just BS, pure straight up. And I think it's a disservice to the world to talk like that. Maybe that person was using drugs. Maybe that person was under extreme cognitive load. Maybe that person was exercising or in an oxygen deficient diet at altitude. So they're not revealing what we reveal in the book. And the magic is your metabolism. The magic is maintaining your metabolism. What is your metabolism? How many calories you're burning? So why are all those fitness people successful in losing tremendous amounts of body fat in a very short period of time? Well, they spend a lot of time doing muscle building exercises, which conti continually boosts their metabolism while fo following a high satiety, low caloric intake. And that difference allows them to strategically, almost to a T within a week, within two weeks, predict exactly what body fat percentage they would be there. None of these eat whatever, you know, just eat, you know, 18 pounds of butter a day gurus are doing that. That's just garbage. Okay. So I, and I want to warn that because it sounds great. Hey, I can just do all my vices and it doesn't matter because I took the magic supplement or I read the magic book or believe the magic story. Now, one of the consequences though, of doing a highly, um, like in, in putting that calorie deficit to an extreme level, either by over-exercising or over dieting, eating too big of a calorie deficit, is that your body has this down-regulated component where you destroy your metabolism. In other words, your body gets really efficient with the food that it's eating. And as soon as you go back to a normal diet or a little bit of you know regular diet, you start gaining fat like crazy. And I saw this so often with fitness competitors who would look absolutely stunning cosmopolitan Instagram superstar fitness, like, and you're going, and, and it didn't matter. They might be 20. And I think it's worse. The younger you are for a female, they might be 30. They might be 40. They might be 50. And you're looking at this thing and they're like, great. And then I'd see them at a contest six months later and they're 30 pounds overweight. And they don't know why, because they did the calories in calories out strategy, but they didn't 
look at the metabolic impact. And so inside that, we identify a couple of key strategies. Reverse dieting when you hit your great wake. Calorie cycling, strategic calorie spike days to boost your metabolism. And strategic application of exercise. To give you an example of an experiment that I did that was shocking, because a lot of ladies want to do cardio because they see on the machine, I burned 500 calories this hour. Well, if I do another hour, I can burn 1,000 calories. If I do three hours, I can burn 1,500. And that way, my 1,500 calories that I ate and the, and the extra calories I ate over and above my maintenance level, I can burn that off on the cardio machine. So get this. 18 months on a restrictive diet to compete at the natural Olympia at 50 years old. Suboptimal hormones at my age. No TRT that a lot of those experts that are talking about, you know, the magic formula, the magic stories are doing. No other drugs that are stimulating my metabolism, which there's a lot of those drugs out there that people are using. No dietary, uh, like, you know, GLP-1, you know, Exempix and all that sort of stuff. None of that stuff. So none of those things. This is a drug-tested event. I get out of that and I say, I'm going to go run a marathon. Okay, so I'm weight training, I'm dieting. Doing. I got that down because I've done that my whole life. I've never run a marathon. I decide I'm going to run a marathon and I've got to do all this extra cardio. It's four hours. It's a, a marathon's four hours of running. That's more exercise than I do weight training. A lot more. So I'm running... I'm, I'm still weight training, not to the same amount, but I'm probably exercising twice as much as I needed to do for the Mr. Olympia contest because I'm doing all this extra cardio. Guess what the result was after six months? I had an amazing VO2 max. I ran a marathon in four hours, but I gained about 12 pounds from the contest date in six months. Because I didn't account for some of the responses that my body would have by doing excess cardio. The excess cardio, I didn't, wasn't able to calibrate for the extra hunger I might feel on that day or the next day or the recovery parameters that I needed. I lost muscle mass, for example, in my legs, even though I'm working my legs every day, but I'm working different fibers. So it's, so understanding these manipulation components is the difference from you being successful and not being successful. And the good news is we expose all of them in the book. You just turn to the chapter that's perfect for you, the, the item that you have. And there it is. There's the solution right there. It's that simple. <laughs> I love that example. Wait, I um, also ran a marathon last year. It was my third marathon and it was at 40 and I had this goal to finish feeling good. And I had trained for it very differently than I had trained for any marathon, but I resonate with on my heavy long days. It was, it was strange. I wasn't that hungry that day. I would do a long run. I wasn't that hungry the day after, however, insatiable hunger. I mean, I could yep. have eaten the entire fridge of food. So <laughs> luckily I was aware that that was something that I would be up against when I started training. So I was able to like be cognizant of it and make good choices. But I do think that's, that's something to keep in mind that cardio is not always the answer. We also want to make sure that even though calories in calories out is real, we have a whole chapter devoted to the optimized metabolism. You know, th those are the, the biological mechanics of weight loss or muscle building. However, I think one of the main reasons 97% of people have failed 
with their weight loss goals is not because of a lack of understanding of what to do. It's been more emotional challenges. It's been more psychological challenges. So those, the psychological side and the emotional side of weight loss or achieving any other objective, in our opinion, is as critical and maybe more than the optimized metabolism strategies, right? Again, everybody knows, okay, I should exercise more, eat less, I should, you know, eat this type of food, that kind of food. But so many people struggle with cravings, psychological challenges, emotional trauma, eating because they feel anxiety, so food-driven cravings, et cetera, you're not feeling motivated. Those are the things that are, again, as important as eating the right micro, macronutrients, micronutrients, et cetera. So I just wanted to, to really emphasize that. Of course, we cover that in the book. Yeah, that's so important to remember. And I think I think about health, you know, I think about the definition of health a lot. What does that mean? How do we define it? And I think it's so right on what you're saying, Matt, that it's so much more than calories in, calories out, exercise. It's so much more than, you know, nutrition and exercise. Um, and yeah, so it's good to keep that in mind. It's good to be reminded of that in terms of, you know, how are you feeling successful in this and how are you feeling like you failed and what are the areas where you need some extra support for sure? I'm thinking about, um, you know, for the person listening to this and who's feeling motivated to to stop the yo-yo dieting, to, to really figure out, okay, what's going to work for me? I want to start on this path in earnest. I want to find something that is sustainable. Um, something that satiates me, something that, you know, lights me up through the ups and downs, regardless of age, if you're just beginning, I think it's just so overwhelming with all the diet theory out there. Who do you trust? Where do you go? Right? So I'm curious if you two could tell me each from your own perspective, it might be the same answer. It might be different. What do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind in terms of nutrition? What do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind in terms of exercise? Um, and we just touched on, you know, another aspect of that in terms of feeling successful and feeling like there's, there's more to it than that. But I want to know, you know, for that person who's like, okay, I want to start, but where do I start? I'm overwhelmed. What's one thing they can go do today? Uh, obviously they could go pick up the book. We do have a promo code, which I will announce, um, and make sure it gets into the show notes, but what else would you say? Go ahead, Wade. Number one. Protein's king and regular feedings of it has to be baked into your diet. Second, you need preparation. We're in a world that if you're hungry and you haven't eaten and life is busy, if you don't have food on hand that is optimal for your diet, you're going to default to whatever is available. And that's generally not going to get your goals. The third thing is you've got to do regular exercises that focuses on resistance training. The good news about that, you don't have to be a bodybuilder. You don't have to be a fitness competitor, but muscle is the king for metabolism. It is the king for aesthetics, looking and changing the shape of your body, which we all inherit. And both Matt and I have suboptimal uh, aesthetic components that we were born with and we were able to overcome them. And then the final piece about muscle is it's what it allows you to live longer, healthier. So 
avoiding working out and, and final piece on that for ladies. Look, they're like, I don't want to get too big. There would probably be one in 10,000 females who genetically are capable of building an extraordinary amount of muscle to the point that people would say you're too muscular. And so there's a 9,999 out of a thousand chance that that's not you. So you will probably build a little bit of muscle and gain a little bit of weight when you first start resistant training for the first three to six months. And after that, you're not going to build an excessive amount of muscle, but the muscle that you do build will change your ability to burn fat on such an extraordinary level that your diet is forever going to be way easier than it ever would be if you didn't do that. So if there were those three things, if you can master those three things, the likelihood that you're going to succeed in the long term is disproportionate to the person who doesn't do a diet and address those three things. So those are the ideas. And Matt, you probably have a couple things that you'd like to add. Yeah, first of all, yes to everything Wade said. And I'll add that nutritionally, eating the same thing virtually every day is one of the biggest secrets to success. Virtually every bodybuilder, every professional athlete, every fitness competitor does that. And they do it because there's a lot of advantages to it. One of them is the more variety of food that you eat, meaning different types of food, the more cravings you have. That's been scientifically proven. Second, you're eliminating decision fatigue. You know, how much time and energy are you spending waking up, asking yourself, yeah, what am I going to eat for lunch? What am I eat for breakfast? What am I eat for dinner? And you're setting yourself up to fail by just having that window of questioning. Oh, what should I eat for lunch? Yeah, you know what? Uber Eats, push the button, whatever your favorite you know, thing is to just push a button and, and get delivered. That's typically what happens. And we know that willpower is a limited resource. So we essentially want to completely eliminate that decision-making willpower and essentially have the same thing set up to to be eaten on a daily basis. The other advantage, this is true for muscle building and for fat loss. Let's say your lunch every day is four eggs and you want to decrease calories because your body's adapting. How easy is it to go from four eggs to three eggs? Easy, right? Simple. You don't have to figure out a new winning meal. So Wade, I mean, has pushed that to the end degree and basically eaten the same thing on a daily basis for 18 months straight. But there's also the psychological benefit of you start craving the things that you eat on a regular basis. And we believe that that's gut biome driven because your gut biome will start changing within 48 hours based on what you eat. So I think eating the same thing, assuming that you're eating the right things and you're creating winning meals is such a a massive game changer for so many reasons. And another one I'll add is food prep, which of course, you know, if you want to save time, save energy, you basically prepare maybe 10 or 12 versions of the same meal, put them in glass Tupperware, put it in the fridge, and then you just pull it out, reheat, eat. How easy is that? I will also add that sleep is one of the biggest 
game changers for anabolism. We talked about the benefits of muscle building. You know, if you're getting that high quality deep sleep right out of the gate, which means you need to go to bed at the right time. If you go to bed too late, you get that cortisol response. It destroys the, the first wave of growth hormone release. And that growth hormone release really helps you burn body fat. There's a lot of benefits to that growth hormone spike that you get in that first phase of deep sleep. So I'm a huge proponent of high quality sleep, making sure you're getting enough sleep that will help you burn body fat. It'll help regulate your blood sugar. It'll improve your mood. It's anti-aging. I mean, it's just everything, everything, everything. So making sure that you're getting high quality sleep is critical. And the last thing I'll say on the exercise front, there's a lot of emerging research showing the impact of little bouts of micro-exercise movement throughout the day. So we talked about workouts. People get that. But what if you just sprint up the stairs once or twice a day, right? So I live, I live in a, my home has four floors. I can just sprint up the stairs and that just that little sprint of one flight or two flights actually will have a significant impact on the calories that I burn. Right now I'm standing up, I have a stand-up desk. So just moving throughout the day, you can burn an extra 300, 500, maybe even 1,000 calories a day if you're really mindful, and that's called NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And that's another aspect of calorie expenditure that's not really exercise that can, can pay off massive dividends, and you just need to be mindful of it. So I'll stop there, but those would be my big three. I'm glad you brought up neat Matt, because I just uh, was listening to a different podcast on that subject. And um, my husband's like a constant fidgeter. He's always like wiggling his little feet. He does this little thing where he's watching TV and he's moving his feet. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because he's someone who I think has, he's, he's very good at listening to his satiety cues, but he's, he can seemingly eat kind of anything he wants and his weight might fluctuate five to six pounds, but he's pretty fit. Um, and he's, he's just always moving his little feet around. So I, I think of him when I think of neat because he's just always moving. So expending more calories. Um, oh gosh, I could sit here and talk to you guys all day. Thank you so much for joining us on Radically Love. We're so honored to have had this relationship with you over time. For those of you longtime listeners, you've probably heard Wade on the podcast before. We did have the CEO of Nootropics on the show. I believe it was last year. I'll link to all those past episodes in the show notes. I also want to let you know that they have graciously offered us, you listeners, a discount for this book. It's Radically Love 10 is the discount code. It's ultimatenutritionsystem.com slash radically loved to get that URL. And of course, all of that will be in the show notes so that you can easily get to it. And um, that discount code does come with over 200 recipes and um, other bonuses. So I, it's worth checking out, man. This thing is a resource. Like, like Wade and Matt said at the beginning, it's not something that you have to sit there and read from beginning to end. But it's like having a dictionary or thesaurus in your house, something that you know, you're going to want to refer back to over and over again throughout your life. Is there any last thing you guys want to add? One thing I would put out there for people. And that is to recognize is that 
despite all the efforts of so many different companies and organizations and, and their medical system in general, the advice that you're getting for your GP around health and fitness will absolutely leave you in dire straits health-wise. The disability adjusted life expectancy in this country is 60 years old, meaning that you'll spend the next 20 years on medications, surgery, and a decrease in quality of life. The second thing to it is life expectancy in this country has been dropping steadily for four or five years. Uh, drugs, surgeries, prescriptions, etc., are things that are done only in extreme and short-term conditions. The value of investing a little bit of time every day on exercise and getting your dietary habits in order will give you decades of healthy performance where you can enjoy and share the insights and values that you learned over a course of your lifetime, not just with your kids, but with your grandkids. And I'll credit Peter Atia for this. He drew a beautiful timeline on his latest book around longevity. And he talks about what is the value of that last 10 or 15 years of life? Your experiences with your kids, your experiences with the next generation, the legacy that you can leave. And I think that any grandparent that has got into the situation where they weren't able to do the things with their grandkids that they wanted to, or they weren't able to share some of the moments, the special times, the playful components, when they get all the benefits and none of the liabilities of having a child, those insights can be extremely valuable. I had two sets of grandparents, ones who died, I think, premature. I would have loved to share with them because all of the fun and value that they shared with me, they didn't do all the health things and they died early. And I miss them and I wish I could have got more time with them. I had a couple other grandparents who did a lot of the health things and a lot of the nutrition things, but they missed out on the family side of things. So I would encourage people to say, hey, just like having a good investment program financially makes a lot of sense, there's no investment program that produces more happiness, more valuable to you and your family than investing in your health. So getting the Ultimate Nutrition Bible will help eliminate the confusion in people's dietary lives. It will help you identify the key elements that's made you struggle and how to overcome them. And it's gonna provide a resource for everybody despite whatever diet they wanna follow, whatever their genetics are, whatever they identify are, it, that, that doesn't matter. The Ultimate Nutrition Bible solves all those things. It's the most unbiased book ever created in the nutrition industry, we believe. And we, we're co so confident that you're gonna get value about it that we're just encouraging you, just get it, get it for anybody in your family. You're gonna love it. It's a great reference guide, as you said. And our goal is to help millions of people live long, live strong, extend their life and extend their healthy lifespan so that they can share their insights, their value, their encouragement to the people closest to them. And that's our message to close out the podcast. And thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening to the Radically Loved Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook at Radically Loved Rosie, on Instagram at Rosie Acosta, and Twitter at Rosie Acosta. By the way, this is original music by DJ Taz Rashid. You can follow DJ Taz on Spotify and check out the best music for yoga and meditation. This has been a Mod Pod Studio production. Check them out at www.modpodstudio.com.